Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we listen to music inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today we're going to be talking about music notation. So I think where I'd like to start this, if this works for you, is with a fairly simple question. So off the top of your head, don't overthink this. What is music notation for? What's the point? What comes to mind is the point of music notation is to record music in a visual way so that others may play what was recorded. Imagine I said that in a much more eloquent way. (laughs) No, but I I think what you're hitting on, and this is, I think, the the point that I really want to make clear from the start, is that music notation is a tool. Its use is primarily utilitarian. It's not in and of itself an art form. And as, as we get on, we, we can talk about things like iMusic and things like graphic scores where, you know, it does start to blur that line a little bit. But like primarily when we talk about like staff notation or guitar tab or whatever, when we talk about like what those things are used for, they are tools for communicating. They are not tools for expression. Yeah. If that makes, does that make sense? Yeah. I think it makes sense like an alphabet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like, You can draw fancy letters if you want, but the point of letters is to communicate words. Yes, exactly. And in the same sort of way, the point of notation is to communicate musical ideas. And that, I think, places some significant constraints on what sorts of shapes music notation should take, like should in quotes always, every time I ever say that word, (laughs) Uh, but like what form it it should take and how, how we should be thinking about it and constructing it. And this this is the thing I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially over the last like six months or whatever, because like a, a couple months ago now, I made a video about this stuff where I was talking about basically this idea that I, well, I first encountered uh, from a, a guy called Sandeep Bhagwati, uh, which he calls notational perspective. Okay. Which is just the idea that the way you write things down reflects and potentially changes how you think about them. And, and this, you know, to go back to the alphabet analogy, right? Yeah. Like there are letters in the Cyrillic alphabet that represent sounds that I'm not necessarily used to making or using or differentiating in my English speech because my English speech uses the Roman alphabet. Yeah. And not not directly because of that, but there's, you know, the distinction is easier to draw. I mean, what comes to mind for me with that too is in general, kind of adjacent to the alphabet is in general language broadly, like the way it's been well documented that the words that you have for colors in your language will change the way that you perceive color and that sort of thing. Yeah, and so change change which sorts of colors feel different enough to be worth recognizing as yes. different. That's I think is a huge point in music notation is like what are the differences that are worth recognizing? Because this is a thing where like you know if you look at so a good analogy I think would be a map, right? Like I think a lot of people are probably familiar with the mapping problem where the the Earth is basically a sphere. Let's not overcomplicate our geometry here. Let's say the Earth is a sphere. The Earth is a flat plane. Yeah, basically, exactly. Uh, But you have this 3D object, and if you're trying to represent it in two dimensions on a map, you have to make compromises. There is no perfect map of the world because maps are two-dimensional. And so you get all of these different ways that try to preserve different aspects of it. Like they might try and preserve landmass. They might try and preserve relative distance. They might try and preserve like latitude, longitude, like, but, you know, famously the, the Mercator projection, which is the one that I think 
most people are probably most familiar with, at least in North America. I don't want to say it was specifically chosen for this, but it, it very conveniently makes Europe look a lot bigger than it actually is. Yeah. And so if you compare the size of Europe on the Mercator projection to the size of Africa, they, they look about the same. But Africa being much more equatorial is shrunk on that projection because that projection uh, expands things near the poles. I mean, this is completely unrelated to this, but the actual function, why it ended up that way was because the Mercator was useful for, I forget exactly what it is, but it's something to do with sea charts. Yeah. With uh, like, it's very useful for navigating that way. Yeah. The lines of latitude, I think, is the one that distance from the equator is that is preserved. And longitude is also sort of. But yeah, so these, these sorts of projections... That, that particular one has political ramifications in terms of how we think about the scale of the world. And in a similar way, if we look at the way we notate things, we're making a lot of assumptions about what we should be notating. And this is sort of the central concept that uh, Bhagwati was arguing in the sense, like, thing that I've been, like I said, thinking about a lot recently, especially like one of the things that struck me about this was that it wasn't something that I had really thought about before I encountered this. Like I was sort of aware of the idea of other efforts to notate music in other ways. And I was aware of other notation systems, but it hadn't really occurred to me how deeply entwined in our notation are these ideas about like, what is important in music and especially what isn't important, what we can just sort of, again, to use the color example, what things we can think of as the same. I think when you kind of take that and extrapolate it kind of right next to what is and isn't important in music that's decided by that is even just what is and isn't possible in music. There's certain things where if you don't have, you know, if you're brought up in a theoretical framework that doesn't have I don't know, like like an example that I always come back to with stuff is like, I know it's not exactly a notation thing, but like the concept of a raga or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, Which yeah. is something that exists kind of, this is a musical framework that is a very distinct musical framework that is, you know, closely encoded into a lot of Indian classical music. Yeah. But if you don't have the language to understand what a raga is, you can't really create a raga. Don't tell that to everyone in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a great example, because if you look at the way we talk about rugs, there's like this, there's this concept in the West when people talk about that is, it, you know, it's basically a scale, right? Like you, yeah. you can, we can basically compare it to a scale. And that works if you're not looking too closely, because Western music is so built on this idea of scales. And this is something we're very deeply familiar with. And so we can sort of draw, but like, that analogy loses a lot of the nuances of a rug. Like you get these, these like specific microtonal inflections that you're supposed to do, these specific ways that you're supposed to approach a note or ways that you're supposed to move off a note to the next note. There's just, there's all of these things that are encoded and like you sort of have these families of rugs that are like all technically use the quote unquote same note, but they are different rugs because they have different, it's hard to even like, because I, I don't want to present myself as an expert on Indian classical music. I'm not. But like you you have all of these different concepts of what this same set of pitches could do. And each of them is its own separate structure. And a lot of the times they are different pitches, too. Like there's some of them are a little bit higher, or a little bit lower in terms of microtonal inflection. And all of that is important to the characteristic of the rug. And that gets lost when you try and draw it to a scale. But a scale is something that we 
and you know we are very familiar with and we know how to notate like that's a big thing in like most western notation systems is that they all assume basically the same tuning system yeah there's a little bit complexity to that when we get into like guitar tab and stuff like that but because that doesn't necessarily assume the same tuning but it does usually assume the same tuning system but anyway like you have this assumption that you know there may not always be like this set of 12 pitches but it's a good enough approximation and depending on what sort of music you're interacting with, what sort of like styles you're doing, who you are, what you're trying to do, that's not necessarily a good assumption. Yeah, it's one of these things where, again, like I hadn't really thought of this much, but I've been thinking about it since you mentioned the topic. And I think it's one of the, these things where what we generally, and this is true of anyone in any place, like any culture, but what any one culture experiences as music even given how like, you know, how kind of theoretically broad, you know, Western pop music is from like, you know, like there's a lot of difference between death metal and, you know, indie folk. Yeah. But the frameworks are all the exact same. And it's actually a very it's still a very limited you know, slice of what music is capable of. And the notation system is is a big part of that as well, right? Yeah, I think of this sort of... Uh, I have a friend who does uh, exobiology stuff, which is... Uh, th- this is a bit of a tangent, but, like, he, he does videos about, you know, what life might be like on other planets and stuff like that. And one of the big things that he argues is, like... You know, we we try and look at Earth as a reflection of that, but life on Earth is already so diverse. There are so many different things on Earth that are alive that take completely different shapes and completely different approaches to survival that extrapolating from that becomes very difficult because imagine what would happen if we didn't all start from the same place, if we didn't have the same at the ultimately shared ancestor. Yeah, I've read some sci-fi stuff that does otherwise, but like the vast majority of a thought of what an alien might be, they're all fundamentally based on carbon-based life. Yeah. And for all we know, there could be life based on things other than carbon. And that, what does that even look like? Who knows? And it's one of those things, and I've talked to people about this, and so the, the idea is that like, you know, Theoretically, it shouldn't be likely that there are non-carbon. I'm getting way out of my area of expertise here, but like silicon is sort of the next best candidate. But like, you would have to have an environment that was very poor in carbon to for a silicon-like based life form to form. But there's no reason to believe that somewhere in the universe there is not some environment that is relatively poor in carbon. We're recording this a couple days after the first James Webb images have come out. So exactly, who knows what's happening in that? But yeah, even if you like. If you look at a lot of like science fiction media, a lot of them assume bilateral symmetric bipeds, <laughs> like yeah, basically <laughs> the humanoid body plan for all of their intelligent creatures. There's just no reason to assume that. And again, to sort of bring this back to the, the, the point that I can actually speak on with some level of authority, like you, you look at all of the diversity in Western popular music and then you sort of take that further back and compare that to like the stuff in like Western classical music and all of that as one tradition that has sort of not in isolation, obviously, but has sort of grown. And you can see all of these different changes and all of these different styles that have developed there. And then you go like, okay, but imagine what you would see if you had a different starting point, right? Imagine what you would see if yeah. the people, the foundations of your tradition had never heard of 
Bach, had never heard of Beethoven, had never heard of the Beatles. Like, what does that look like? And the answer is it's very different. Well, well, so I recently actually just at my record store got this awesome record where it's a 70s folkways record and it's a recording of a lot of Nootka musicians. Uh, so Nootka is a band of it's an indigenous band on Vancouver Island. And I was listening to this and it had because it's uh, folkways and it's really sick. It had like a insert explaining kind of like trying to help orient you how to listen to the music and it talked about how like one of the early musicologists who studied Nootka music like really really struggled with figuring out how to count it yeah because their cultural idea of what rhythm was was so fundamentally different it ended up with I mean this is I don't know what modern scholarship on this says but this is also this was written in the 70s but what what she ended up coming up with to kind of contextualize was talking about rhythms more as said they shared less in common with our idea of musical meter and more in common with our idea of like poetic meter hmm. and iams and strophes 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 trochees i believe is the word you're looking for yeah, stuff like that, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. And like talking about how like their conception of rhythm is not built around, you know, the relationship between notes in a given space that's called what we call a bar, but rather the relationship in notes between one note and the note before it, you know? Yeah, rhythm is a really interesting example, because if you look at staff notation, which, is, you know, there, there are plenty of like notation styles used for Western popular music. And we can get into some of those later. But if you look at staff notation, which I would argue is sort of the default one, the one that like most people would view as, you know, would recognize as music notation. If you look at them and it's like, that's what music looks like, you know, with the, the dots and the lines and the stems and everything. There is probably even more so than pitch. It is very difficult to use staff notation without specifying rhythm. Yeah, you can do like there's a couple ways to do it. Like, you know, if you're just looking for like a comping pattern or whatever, you can do like slashes. That's those exist. Uh, but that's just for like harmonic stuff. And but if you want to like notate a melody of any sort, you really have to specify to a pretty precise level of detail what rhythm you want. And there's sort of become forces it to become this rigid thing. But so a while back, I did a video about Seven Nation Army. Yeah. And. I assume most people listening are familiar with the bass riff. The ba 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 ba. Fun fact, it's actually a guitar riff. It's a guitar riff with an octave pedal. That is true. I, I did talk about that briefly in my video, but you know, <laughs> it sounds like a bass, so I'm going to call it a bass. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. That bit in the middle where it goes fast, the ba 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 ba. Like, I found some things saying those were triplets. And other things saying they were a slightly uneven rhythm called a tricio, which is like ba, 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 that thing where it sort of like is three notes, but the third one's a little shorter than the other two. Yeah. What, what I did was I like, because I had the track, I, I had the isolated quote unquote bass track. And so I just went and measured and I looked up, looked at each and A, it's wildly inconsistent what he's doing there, which is not uncommon. But B, it's sort of neither. It's sort of in between. The, the average of what yeah. he was doing was sort of in that space between those. And it was like it flowed and sometimes it was a little like it lagged a little bit. Sometimes it was a little more even. It had this like micro rhythmic expressiveness to it that like 
this fight between like, oh, is it triplets? Is it a Tresio? Blah, blah, blah. Like completely misses. I mean, that's something that to me, it's always interesting as one of the big kind of failures of drum machines, right? Where and I mean, yeah. there's lots of lots of drum machines are wicked and lots of artists do cool stuff with drum machines and digital drums and stuff like that. Like, yeah, this yeah. is not saying they are a complete failure as a technology, but it's a really interesting situation where like a lot of the time, you know, in theory, if, yeah. you know, notation actually worked well for rhythm, you'd be able to put in, you know, a rhythm into a drum machine and it would sound perfect. But when you put stuff into drum machines, they sound so yeah. rigid because they're not accounting for, like you said, those micro rhythmic things that people are doing sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally that add to the groove of a song. Most drum machines these days do allow you to do that and... A lot of like, especially stuff that like uh, plugins for DAWs and stuff that can run on like computer hardware can do a lot of that sort of add some randomness to it, some noise just to sort of make it yeah. feel a little more human. But like, there's one of those things, like you said, where you have to, I mean, you don't have to, it depends what you're going for. Like if it's a really sort of electronic style and you want it to sound artificial, heck yeah, quantize the hell out of those drums, like yeah. line them up perfectly yeah. with that grid. But like when they are lined up exactly precisely correct with the grid, you can feel it and it doesn't feel human. Like even really, really good drummers, there is some level of play in that space of like what those are. And it's one of those things where like, I'm not even necessarily sure that I would want notation to be able to capture that, right? Like part of that is a sort of fleeting in the moment, improvisational or accidental thing that comes up, I guess... The terms that I was using in the video that I made, because Bhagwati had his own like fairly complicated terms, but I was just calling them fixed versus unfixed components. And, you know, if, if you look at these sort of microtonal fluctuations, they are unfixed. They're not supposed to be exactly the same every time. Uh, if they are, it starts to sound, you know, it can get a bit disorienting because, you know, it feels like it's doing something else. And it feels it again starts to feel mechanical if it's perfectly repeated every time. But it's not necessarily important for notation to be able to capture those aspects of music, but it's important to recognize that it can't. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, it's important broadly to recognize that notation is it's creating a simulacra of the song, you know, like it's not creating the song exactly as is. It's creating a, a an impression of the song that you can then kind of take and use that to make the song, I mean, if you want to make it sound like accurate to recording or whatever, you can try to do that. If you want to make it sound more often, a lot of notation is helpful for providing a roadmap for where people can and kind of quote unquote can't yeah. add their own stuff in if they want to stay true to the sound or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of sort of the fixed versus unfixed components aspect of it is that, you know, the fixed components, broadly speaking, are the things that you would think of as, quote unquote, the song, right? Yeah. Like, if I asked you what, you know, and my bird can sing sounds like, the things you're going to latch on to are probably things like, you know, the melody, the chord progression, maybe possibly some of the instruments, but it's not going to be like every specific little like guitar fill in, throughout the yeah. entire song. It's not going to be like this one little cymbal tap that Ringo. I don't know if there are any of those in the song. I 
picked a song at random. But, you know, like those, those sorts of like little fills that people add in, like we call them fills, like that implies that they're not that important. They're filling space. Important is a complicated word to use there, but it implies that they're not load bearing, you know? That's a good word for it. I like that. If you took them out, the song would be recognizable. Whereas if yeah. you took And My Bird Can Sing and completely changed the melody, you know, you, you might still be able to figure out what it was from the lyrics, but you'd be confused. And if you were to change yeah. the lyrics too, you'd start to feel like it was maybe a different song. <laughs> and if you changed the chords too, like it, it would be a different song. And so... Yeah, you'd start to feel like maybe this is Enter Sandman, not And Your Bird Possibly you were, <laughs> you were listening to Enter Sandman by Metallica <laughs> at some point. Those are the two songs. That Those are... Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> every song exists on a spectrum from And My Bird Can Sing to Enter Sandman. Uh, this is music <laughs> theory. But <laughs> you get these things that either are load-bearing and are essential to your ability to consider the thing the same song, or they aren't. And what that is will change depending on your cultural background, depending on what you're used to, depending on what you expect from this particular style of music, right? Like, even saying this is going to sound very weird, and I, like... But if you were to change the rag being used in And By Bird Can Sing, I'm not sure that that's something you could notice because I, I don't think there is one in any meaningful sense. And so yeah. your, your ability to recognize that that was changed is very difficult because it's not really there in the first place. And so you don't really have to worry about sort of figuring out which rag they're singing in because that's not how they're singing. That's such a mind bending. Just talking about it gives you a yeah. headache thinking about yeah. like, yeah, what would that be? What would that even mean? So and again, it's one of those things where like fundamentally, the reason that that doesn't really make sense is because that sentence is meaningless. And yeah. like there are aspects of it that you can change pretty easily. And I think some of those are things that you could pick up on and notice as, like, if you were to take And My Bird Can Swing, uh, I meant sing, but I was going to say and make it swing, add a little bit of swing to it. And then call it And My Bird Can Swing. Oh, yeah. Please, someone do that. Yeah, I would love to hear that. Do a big band cover called And My Bird Can Swing. Let's make this happen, people. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think you could still pretty easily recognize it as the same song because that sort of the specific rhythmic groove in that context wouldn't necessarily be a super fixed component. It would be a thing you could change. And conveniently, in staff notation, swing is not really a fixed element. Swing is something that, like, you just, you write the word swing at the start of the chart, and then it's played swing. That's the only difference. And so... That's really interesting. Swing, I, I actually wanted to talk about, like, swung rhythms in staff notation, because something that I think is really kind of, like, interesting is that that is something where like the swung rhythm is something that was added to yeah. this notation hundreds of years after this notation was formalized to yeah. not that notations are always you know changing in certain ways but i think that's a very interesting and very clear example of it because it is an example of like ultimately the origins of what became swung rhythms can go back to like West African rhythms. And ultimately, a swung yeah. rhythm is something that like staff notation didn't really have yeah. the cultural understanding to incorporate into its notation system when it came up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a concept from another tradition that was just sort of trying to graft onto the system we already have. 
Yeah. You know, and have been trying to graft onto it for over a century now, to be like, to be fair. It's a really interesting example. And and this is also a thing I brought up in my video. I do kind of feel like I'm just rehashing that a bit. So apologies for people who've seen that video. This is a thing where if you look at the way we write down swing, like sometimes you'll just write swing at the top of the chart. That's often what you'll see from actual jazz musicians. But like the way we learn to do it in music school, the way like more classically influenced like places will write swing is often like you know, two eighth notes yeah. equals a quarter note and an eighth note triplet. And that is not right. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's one of those things where like the reason we do it that way is that it's close enough. Like it, it gets across the idea in a way that is compatible with how staff notation wants to work. Yeah. But it's also wildly incorrect as a way of actually describing the feeling of swing. Like it's, you know, it's, it's not, you know, completely unrelated, but you know, there's a lot more like micro rhythmic push and pull to it. There's a lot of space. You can have a light swing, you can have a hard swing, or you can have a medium swing that will probably be somewhere around that triplet figure. But like, it's just, you have all of these different options, but those options don't have corresponding notations. And so you're just sort of stuck with it. I think another thing similar to swing that the staff system has a very kind of like vague way of capturing is dynamic as well, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. There's no specific way. If you say something is, you know, fortissimo it's not like there's like a decibel level that has like a mathematical correlation yeah there are there are six volumes yeah exactly whereas if you do something like not not necessarily rhythm but if you do something like tempo like there is you can kind of mathematically do tempo but yeah yeah well well to a degree fairly recently yes you know there's a reason like we still talk about things like adagio yeah is like before you could set um, like a digital metronome to a very specific point, it just wasn't worth specifying to a very specific point. Yeah. Like now, now you can. You can set a metronome, set a click track to 115.87 beats per minute. Yeah. And it will just do that. It will break that up and give you that. But like, you know, Adam Neely has a video about this. Unless you're like doing like electronic music that isn't doesn't involve live instruments at all, like there's no... If you're just conducting an orchestra, there's not that much difference between 130 and 131 beats per yeah, minute. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just not different numbers. The variance that a human being introduces is larger than that. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, depending on how it's notated and the, you know, way the song is written yeah. and stuff, like, if it is conducted, it'll probably actually fluctuate between, yeah. you know, a couple degrees of that in any given moment of the song. Yeah. The example that really stands out to me, and this is one of the things that's just is really hard to capture like successfully in any notation system, but timbre. Yes. Like if you look at the way this actually again goes back to another video I made where I was talking about actually responding to a video Adam had made where he, he was talking about like owning the sound of piano. And part of my argument was like, well what is the sound of piano, right? There are I don't know how many pianos in the world, but they all sound a little bit different. And there's some pretty broad ranges. And if you look at like sample packs, they come with like yeah. dozens or hundreds of different piano sounds. If you're writing it down on sheet music, you're just going to write piano. Yeah. 
Uh, if, if you bother specifying an instrument at all, you're just going to say, oh, it, it's that one. And you're just going to hope that, you know, it, it's close enough. And hope is a strong, is the wrong word. It's going to be close enough because starting with the rise of synthesizers, starting with the rise of digital instruments in general, we got a lot finer control of timbre. Yeah. And like we can make really specific sounds out of specific component frequencies to do exactly what we want. People who, who will make music that like paints a face on a spectrogram. Yeah. Like we, we have that level of control, but we don't have any way of writing that down. Besides like writing down like a specific synthesizer setting, you can do that. Well, and, and similar with like non-digital instruments, like there are things where you can write where you write like how you're physically manipulating the instrument that will change timbre. Like you can, yeah. you know, write for the trumpets to put a mute in. Yeah. Like that's not actually, yeah. that's kind of yeah. notating an action that you're doing to try to get this timbre. It's not really notating the timbre itself. Yeah. Notating an action is, I think a really interesting point outside of staff notation. I would say probably the most common and most recognized form of music notation for Western popular music is guitar tap. Yeah. Which is exactly that, right? Like the, there is fundamentally no actual pitch information in a guitar tab. There's, you know, until I tell you how the strings are tuned, I am just notating what you should do with your hands. And yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there's an assumption that this will correlate, right? Like if I don't specify a tuning, you're going to assume it's standard E-A-D-G-B-E. Did I get the E-A-D-G-B-E? Yeah, I got that right. Awesome. Yeah. I'm so good yeah. at music. <laughs> but, it, you know, you can have different things. Like I, the song I'm working on a video about right now is in drop D. And so, yeah, like the tab is in drop D and it has a different set of and the numbers don't correspond to pitches in the way that they would if I was looking at standard tuning. It's even interesting, too, with tablature, because if you capo it, yeah, it's very intuitive when you play it. But it's one of those things where when you kind of like try to work backwards from yeah. it, when you're capoing, it's like, oh, so now now we're not all other times, you know, it's basically a representation of the neck, except when you capo, you're moving the neck up to yeah. the capo, assuming what the fret the capo on is on is zero. Like it's a it's a thing that is it's in. Yeah, I mean, tablature is so interesting because it's something that when you try to kind of retroactively look at it like you might staff notation, it can be very convoluted. Oh, yeah. But when you play it, it is incredibly, incredibly easy and intuitive, which is why it's like, you know, one of the predominant methods of notation right now. Yeah, no, that like, honestly, that specific thing of, you know, capos on guitar tab was really frustrating and confusing for me as someone coming from staff notation trying to look up you know transcriptions for like for like videos that I was needed to analyze songs for and I needed to have transcriptions of like trying to find those transcriptions for guitar based songs and finding them and being like oh well this says it's two on the a string so that's a b then I go listen to the recording and it's like, that's definitely a C sharp. And then I would go back and be yeah. like, oh, capo on the second fret. And it's just like had to do all of that and had to learn how to do that sort of conversion and that mental math because I was trying to take this thing that was not made to convey specific pitch information and use it to extract specific pitch information so that I could do what I wanted to do with it. 
I've even like like I play a bit of guitar like I'm not good at it but like I play tabs and stuff like that and there's times before where I have learned a song and like learned it and been like wait that doesn't sound quite right yeah. and then realized that I just I ignored yeah, the capo information yeah yeah I had a, a friend who like was doing a cover of a song and like looked up the tab and just and learned to play the tab just without listening back to the song and didn't realize that the tab was in drop D. So yep. everything he was playing on the E string was a whole step up. And he wound up liking that version so much with this like alternate weird route that didn't quite line up with the implied harmony that he stuck with it and built his like cover around that. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, actually, one of the songs that I in like high school, I learned to play Simple Man in fingerstyle, yeah. except that song is tuned a half step down. And some if I want to play it properly, I'll tune a half step down. But a lot of the time, it's just one of those things where you know how you'll just have something with an instrument where you yeah. just pick up and that's the thing that you automatically do. Yeah, I do that almost as an exercise playing guitar and i'm like i'm not gonna bother half tuning it down no so the other day i was like listening to the actual song and i was like wait this out this sounds wrong and i was like oh no wait i i'm just yeah i learned this wrong yeah 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 exactly yeah i remember and this is only sort of related but i was back in high school i was like i took bass lessons and i was like learning cemetery gates by pantera the stuff that my my bass teacher was giving me to play sounded wrong and i was trying to figure out how to eventually talk to him he was like yeah this is tuned like a quarter step off like the bass is like a quarter step flat and you know it it's not worth tuning this down a quarter tone so it's just going to sound a little weird when you play it with the recording that's just but and you know that that's sort of one of those things with notation where you sort of have to assume some level of basically anything you have to assume some level of quantization but like specifically with pitch most western popular notation styles do specifically assume these 12 pitches and we have ways to do the others especially quarter tones quarter tones aren't that hard to notate but like when you want to get into like real microtonal embellishments and like alternate tuning systems with alternate scales it gets really difficult to accurately convey what you're trying to do against this backdrop of this assumed 12 tone equal temperament yeah i'm sure there are maybe theoretically notation systems out there that might be better at that. But the reality is that like every notation system is going to have failures in one yeah. place or another, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, no, this is, this is why I was bringing up the map analogy is like there is no map that's a globe. Yeah. They don't exist. They're, the dimensions don't line up. And so there is no notation system that can both perfectly capture exactly what's happening in every nuance of the music and also be readable to humans. Yeah. Like I think it, like if you want, I would like the binary code of an MP3 file or, you know, if you want to do something a little more lossless, you know, something like a wave file or something. Or you can make it as big as you want, but the binary code of an audio file at some level, it is just impossible for me to imagine that you would need more detail than that. But yeah. I can't read binary music. I don't know about you, uh, but that's <laughs> very difficult for me to look at that information 
and get anything Parse useful. Anything, yeah. <laughs> I think I would call this a form of notation. But one interesting one, do you ever see those videos on, I think the software is called Synesthesia, but it's a lot of piano stuff and it's it almost looks yeah. like like a, like a rhythm game. Where the, where the notes are falling? Yeah, yeah exactly, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I would I would actually say because I'll learn piano through those where you watch someone play and and kind of pick it up. But I would say not I wouldn't say watching someone play is a notation system, but I would say those videos are kind of a version of a notation system of their own. Oh, yeah, I I will use those for transcriptions sometimes. Like if I'm trying to figure something out and I find one of those videos for a piano song, I'll go look at what they're doing. And that way it's, it's easier yeah. to get a sense of what a specific fingering might be. And then, you know, see if that sounds the same as the one in the recording. But it's a useful shortcut. It's an interesting sort of notation system because like staff notation, yeah. as we have it now, like in general is I don't think it's a stretch to say it's kind of optimized for the piano right yeah. where like you can use it for any instrument but it fits really really nicely yeah. with piano so this kind of piano notation we'll call it i mean more historically technically i would say that it's optimized for the keyboard yes yeah that's no. actually that's a good call yeah predates the piano by a significant margin but Anyway, that, that's not a useful clarification, so continue. It's optimized for the keytar, I agree. <laughs> exactly. I think it's interesting because because of how naturally it's optimized for a keyboard, this sort of kind of like, it's almost like a like keyboard tablature in a way, yeah. right? Except it's got the like dimension of existing across time rather than being static too. Yeah. But it bears a lot of resemblance to staff notation just because of how well staff notation maps onto keyboards, right? Yeah, and I mean, what it it bears the most resemblance to, to me, is uh, MIDI. Yes. Which yeah. I think is a really interesting notation system because it is primarily a notation system to be read by computers. And that changes a lot about what how you want to optimize it, how it's how it's meant to be optimized, how, how you can best use it and what sorts of things, how much information it's capable of conveying and how much information it has to convey. Because unlike, you know, if I give again, we talk about these like microtonal, micro rhythmic embellishments. If I give like piano sheet music to a piano player, they're going to do a lot of that naturally, not microtonal stuff. Pianos can't really do microtonal stuff. I should have said guitar if I was going to talk about microtones, but we're here now. It's too late to go back. <laughs> but if you if you take that same piano notation and give it to a computer through MIDI, it's going to do exactly what you tell it to do. And so if you yeah. want things to be a little bit sort of a little bit swung, you have to put that in there yourself. If you want things to be a little bit like... You want know, the note to be a little detuned. You have to program that, and all of that is built into the, the built into MIDI because it has to be because there is no interpretation lens that the the notation goes through. Where you know it, in traditional notation, there's the sort of transcription phase where you write down what you want, and then the interpretation phase where you take that and use it to create music. But in with MIDI and with computers, again the the interpretation is very literal. It is exactly what you yeah. wrote down note for note, beat for beat with no fluctuation, unless you use one of those things. Like I said, there are these days, a lot of programs will let you program, uh, just add some random noise to some of these parameters to make it feel a little more human. But even then, you're still programming the thing in. You're just telling the computer to pick a number. 
Yeah. It's going to do the same thing every time you hit play. It's interesting the way that the medium is the message, you know, like like what what you're trying to accomplish with a notation will fundamentally change how that notation operates, what that notation is and, you know, what that notation values. And yeah. And which notation system makes the most sense. Yes. Yeah. And one example that I sort of had been meaning to bring up earlier, and I don't know that this is necessarily the right place for it, but it's the place I'm doing it, is, like, again, going back to Guitar Tab, like, on guitar specifically, there are a bunch of different ways to move from one note to another without re-striking the string, or at least re-picking. Yep. Uh, you can do a slide, you can do a bend, you can do, like, a hammer-on or a pull-off. There's all of these different ways that you can go from one note to another. On piano, there's none of that, and so... Staff notation has ways to do it because, again, staff notation is also designed for voices and violins and everything. And so there are yeah other there are like a couple ways to notate that. There's the glissando, there's the slur, but like all of those are vibes based, right? Like, yeah, if your your particular instrument, if you get to a point where there is a glissando, you sort of have to decide what that physically means. Whereas a guitar tab can tell you this is a bend hit this fret and bend it up. Or it can tell you this is a slide or this is a hammer-on. Like all of these different specific physical actions can be encoded in the system because the system is so instrument specific. Because obviously as a vocalist, I can't do a hammer-on. That doesn't make sense. I can do a slide, but it's physically different. You're just not trying hard enough. Exactly. (laughs) And there's like not really a difference between my trying to do a slide versus a bend because they're, whereas on a guitar there is. And so by being very instrument specific, guitar tab can be very precise in what it wants you to do physically in ways that will change the sound. But again, this goes back to your color analogy, right? Like for me as a vocalist, I don't necessarily think of a slide and a bend as sounding all that different. And yeah. you know, there, there are differences. I could tell you what some of the differences are like technically, but, and I can recognize them if I'm listening for it, but sort of intuitively, they feel like kind of the same thing to me. But to a guitarist, they absolutely don't. And that absolutely matters. And part of that is because it's possible. And part of that is because they have a notation system that trains them to think about it as possible. Are you familiar with harmonica tablature at all? I am not. I, I think I've, I've seen it at some point, but I, I can't remember much. So. so it's really interesting because obviously harmonica is an instrument you play with your mouth. It indicates whether you're blowing a note out or breathing a note in because that's a fundamentally it's a very different thing but again it's the same note yeah right but it's a it's completely different and completely changes the way of the song and it's just i don't have that much to expound on it's just another similar to guitar tab it's interesting how you know how because it's written specifically for this instrument it will be able to express things that are kind of more unique to this instrument yeah it reminds me of uh violin notation which violins and like those sorts of strings in general will typically just use staff notation but yeah there are adaptations that you can use to communicate more information like the the down bow or the up bow or you can use a slur to say like play all of these on one bow like don't go back and forth between these or you know stuff like that well and it is interesting to 
Because to get to something we were talking earlier, like Boeing is actually one of the ways that you can kind of, again, it's similar to just saying what you're doing, but that's a pretty good way to change timbre. Yeah. Right. Like that's what that's what a lot of that is about, because bowed string instruments are such rich instruments when it comes to variety of timbre. Yeah. And in terms of like where you're bowing and stuff like that, I think for the up bow versus down bow, it's more about sort of where the breaks in the melody are. Yeah. What what where the phrase because, you know, you, you can't keep pulling down forever. Eventually you run out of bow. So there has to be it's sort of like, you know, for a singer, you have to breathe. And so there have yeah. to be, and for really precise vocal notation, you should include breath marks that say like, this is a point where you can breathe. Or, you know, if there's a rest, you just inhale there. But if it's a long phrase, you have to have a point where it's like, okay, inhale. But, and all of that, or a lot of that anyway, can be done on staff notation, which I think is sort of one of the big takeaways for this for me is that, you know, if you look at staff notation, it is by design, a very flexible system, right? Yeah. Like you can... You can graft a couple things on top of it in any number of directions to make it much more specific to a specific instrument, to a specific tradition, to whatever. Like, But it's still, at the end of the day, you are grafting these things on. There are specific assumptions. It's not so much about what's, what the notation system makes possible. It's more about what it makes easy. To use kind of like continue that language analogy... Yeah. I feel like one of the strengths of of staff system, it's a lot like English, where one of the strengths of English is that you can kind of do anything with English, you know, like yeah. it's it's as a language, it has such nonsense. It doesn't really have enough of a formal structure, but that allows you to just make up words very easily and import yeah. things from other language and stuff like that. And I think that's something that staff notation does well is like you said, you can graft things onto it. Yeah. And, and like, there are some sounds that English doesn't really have a way of writing. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I'm thinking like tongue clicks and stuff like that. But you know, if you look at, again, the, the thing that is easy to lose in that because it is pretty possible to take most instruments that in some way resemble 12 tone equal temperament tuning and most traditions that play in something resembling Western meter and notate some version of them to, to a reasonable level of accuracy with staff notation. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that that doesn't necessarily mean staff notation is a good way to do those. Yeah, because, again, it makes these assumptions about what is supposed to be easy and default. And these are things like, you know, 12 tone pitch, the basic 4-4 meter. Like we, we assume 4-4 to the point where like at least in America, and I know this is different in Europe, but like in America, our names for rhythmic durations are based on how they divide a bar of 4-4. <laughs> yeah. Like we talk about whole notes, half notes, quarter notes. And I know... English listeners listening to this are probably going to be yelling about brevs and semiquavers, but that's also a very silly system, to be fair. It's, <laughs> it's a very, very silly set of words to expect me to learn when I can just use fractions. <laughs> when you can just use inaccurate <laughs> fractions. You all get depending. A lot of the time I'm talking about 4-4, four, four, <laughs> yes. though. And that, I yeah. think, is sort of an, another important point is that, like, in Western music... These time signatures aren't just like the length of a bar, right? They're yeah. also an implied rhythmic pulse. So like 4-4 four, four is dun da dun da one two three four one two three four. Whereas like uh, the best example is three four versus six eight. Whereas like one yeah. two three one two three one two three four five six one two three four five six. Same length, but different pulses, different accents. And so when you get into things 
that don't have as clear and def- that aren't as commonly used, that sort of time signature system starts to fall apart. Like, because, you know, you, even if you look at something like 7, 8, like, is that 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, 1 and da, 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 da. Or is that nope, that's not right. What I think that's, that's an, yeah. an an interesting thing that I'm just kind of thinking of this now, but it's interesting because like a lot of the stuff, you know, like really kind of crazy, like proggy stuff with yeah. lots of time change signatures, it's perceived as you know, like trying yeah. to stretch what you can do with time and music. But I think it's more accurately often trying to stretch what you can do with time in staff notation. Yeah. Right? Yeah, what you can do with time in Western meter. And this is, again, like a a thing that I I talked about in the video is like uh, Dance of Eternity. Like the Dream Theater song is famously like, oh, it changes time signatures like a hundred times. And there's like over 20 distinct meters. And it's like, eh, is there though? Like yeah. you listen to it and it just it doesn't feel like all of these things are changing. It feels like they're not really thinking about this in terms of traditional Western meter. And once you sort of let go of that idea, a lot of it sort of flows much more naturally because that's not really the right lens to be using for this particular work. And yet it's the lens that you're forced to adopt by staff notation and by and, and again, like it's one of those things where the it's not just, you know, staff notation makes you think this way. It's much more nuanced and complicated than that. Yeah. There's this whole feedback loop of like, we learn to think this way. So we build our system to reward thinking this way, which encourages us to think this way, which means we optimize our system a bit more towards that. And so it positive feedback cycle. Yeah. It's not just you learn staff notation and suddenly you can't think about additive meter. It's not that it's not that simple at all. But I think something something. Yeah. On this is. Like, it is important to note with these things, there are often like cultural harms that come from that. But it's also like it's not like there's like a secret music Illuminati who are, you know, trying to control your thoughts with music. Like, it's just you are no matter what, no matter how hard you try, you are fundamentally shaped by the culture around you. And if you want to you know, lessen that or break that, you need to be aware of it, but it's always going to be affecting no matter what, like you could go go like as in depth into trying to learn as many different notation systems as you can or stuff like that. But if you're like me and you grew up taking piano lessons, learning staff notation, there's a part of that that is just going to be forever embedded into the way that you view music. Yeah. And to use the, the language analogy, like it's not, if you're a native English speaker listening to this, It's not the reason you are probably not very good at incorporating tongue clicks in the middle of words is not because the Roman alphabet doesn't have a symbol for it. It's because English doesn't use it, so it doesn't need a symbol for it. But because there's no symbol for it, it then becomes harder to borrow and loan words that do use it. And so we tend to smooth those over. And so you get, again, this feedback loop where if there was a symbol for it, maybe we'd be a little better at it because we might have historically borrowed more words that use it. Yeah. But it's not just that you don't have a visual representation to write down on a page to go like, like that's, that did that, that didn't even peak. Good work. Good work, <laughs> microphone. I was sure that would peak. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's not just that there's no visual representation. It's the, the 
cultural context that led there to be no visual representation and the cultural context yeah. shaped by there being no visual representation. It's complicated. Cultures are complicated. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. If they weren't, I wouldn't have a podcast, so... But yeah, was there anything else on kind of this topic that you wanted to add? It's not so much add as reiterate, but I think yeah. one thing that I want to be clear about is that staff notation is actually very good at a lot of things. Yes. Like this is, yeah. this is not a hatchet job on staff notation. It's I think that, again, it's not so much for me that, you know, it needs to be able to incorporate all of these other things but that it is useful, again, viewing notation as a tool and as a utilitarian object more so than an expressive object is useful to consider and be aware of the limitations of your tools. On that too, it's also important to note, I think this is something we haven't explicitly said, but we've kind of implicitly said, and is is that like staff notation is not objective in in yes. any sort of a way, right? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. To the point where, and not just staff notation, no form of notation is objective. Corey yeah. and I coming at objectivity again, like usual. But I guess you could say MIDI is, if you, you know, have a keyboard where you can record straight to MIDI, I guess that is an objective notation of what you played. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the question of like what objective means. Oh my God. Oh, a ghost notes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like, I, I think that to an extent, you can say that staff notation is an objective representation of the specific parameters that it is designed to reflect, assuming the transcription is correct, right? Like, you know, yeah. if there is a B at a specific point and I write a C there, that's not just like, oh, I, I felt like it was a C. It's like, no, that it's wrong. That's a wrong answer. But I think I think there's even situations where things like we talked about rhythm or chord voicings or stuff like that, like in the yeah. transcription can be a little muddled, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think and there's also because of the specific nature of staff notation, there are going to be some judgment calls. Like if you play the note halfway between C and D, is yeah. that a C sharp or a D flat? Exactly. And you just you just have to make a decision and they're both correct. But one of them is probably going to be more correct in the context that you're notating. And so you have to make that choice. It's usually not a hard choice, that particular one. But, you know, there's some pretty good guidelines on which one you should probably yeah. use in most circumstances. But, you know. There, there are places where you have to make decisions, but I like I, I do think that it's it's worth distinguishing between like not objective in the sense that it's just, you know, totally whatever and not objective in the sense of like there are aspects of this that are not being written down. It's not objective in that it is limited by its medium and that necessarily means yeah. that whoever is notating is going to have to make judgment calls in certain situations. Yeah. And the biggest judgment call is which notation system you're using in the first place, right? Like, yes. If I'm notating guitar music, do I use staff notation or do I use guitar tab? And that's going to change, have a lot of downstream consequences on everything else I do. Yeah. But I would say, I, I guess sort of, I for me, it feels like the objective versus subjective question there is a little... Yeah, maybe that's not the right phrasing, but yeah. I would say it's representational. Yes. And representations are not perfect by almost by definition. And again, you, you look at like a map. That, that's I yeah. don't have a better analogy than a map. Yeah. Like ultimately staff notation is a map of the music, but it is missing at least one dimension. Yeah. 
that's true of like yeah, any notation. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not unique to staff notation. That's true of any notation. No. Uh, yeah. All right. I think that's probably a pretty good place to leave it with the fourth reiteration yeah. of the map analogy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so go home and look at maps and then look at musical notation. Yeah. And what I'm saying is if you need to find out how to get to the grocery store, you can print off sheet music and look at it and that'll tell exactly. you. Exactly. That will help. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's it's definitely given me a, a lot to chew on going forward. I feel like yeah. I, I definitely think there will be, this will be something, whether it's talking about other forms of notation and graphic notation and that sort of stuff, or just kind of, you know, reopening this conversation. I definitely think notation, yeah. there's there's room for us to come back to this in the future. Yeah, no, like I said, like I, at the start, one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to talk about this is just because, like I said, about six months ago, I've realized how little I was thinking about this stuff. Yeah. And how clearly important it is. But it's just it's so easy to let it to just rely on defaults and to just assume this is whatever you're doing is fine. And like I could have told you if you'd asked that, yeah, staff notation is just a representation. It's not, you know. Yeah, this isn't the only way to write music and this isn't necessarily the best way to write every kind of music. I, I could have told you that, but like it wasn't something I thought about in the way yeah. that I approached my work and the way that I approached reading transcriptions and doing transcriptions. And I think with a lot of this sort of stuff with music, I know with me before having this conversation, I didn't really have more thoughts on this. And now I know that I'm going to go back and, you know, go out and try to play a guitar and be thinking about the tab stuff. It's just flagging this stuff can help you become more self-aware. And just broadly, this is how you become, you know, quote unquote, better at listening to music or how you enrich your musical experience is it's it's one thing to theoretically know this stuff. It's another thing to tease out these thoughts and question the implications of everything you're using. And I think that's part of the fun of being a music fan. And especially like as a musician, someone making music like there's that the old adage, like, you know, you have to know the rules before you can break them. And, you know, there's only a, a certain extent to which that's true. But like, you know, you it really helps to be aware of the assumptions you are making about music because then you can challenge them. Yeah. And sort of until until you can see the bars, you don't know you're in a cage. So mm-hmm. like it's a lot harder to sort of step outside those boundaries and think like, oh, maybe I should try like this sort of. In microtonal stuff because, you know, I, I've sort of been thinking in terms of these 12 notes because that's how but fits on my instrument. That's all this. But like it's there are ways to do this and maybe I should experiment with it or maybe I should play around with meter in ways that don't. Or maybe I should try and do non-metric stuff, which, you know, staff notation is really bad at. The only way to do that is to just write the word rubato at the start. But like, there's all of these options that you aren't necessarily like choosing not to use you're just sort of not necessarily recognizing are there in the first place and obviously like this one hour conversation is not going to change all of that for you yeah it hasn't i i'm still in the process of this i will never be aware of all of the musical options that's a personal failing on my part to be clear you you certainly could be there's no end point to it it's just yeah worth being aware of what assumptions you're making so you can decide whether you want to make them intentionally, which is fine, or you can decide that you want to try breaking them and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the door is open now. Yeah. Do with it what you will. You're welcome. We did that. We deserve full credit for all music you make from here on out. Yes. 
demand a 25% writer's credit. And if you want to send us that credit, you know where to find us. Yeah, on the internet. Bye. Bye.